Hello, I'm Ewan Spence. You might recognise me from such podcasts as the Eurovision Insight podcast all about Windows Phone, Edinburgh Nights and various other podcasts that I've uh, tried and failed to make popular in the past few years. Ewan, you've been podcasting for longer than I have. How did you start podcasting in the first place? I was actually invited onto one of the very world's very first podcasts by two Australians uh, called Mick and Cameron with a podcast called Good Day World. They had a lot of success with that, and they decided to start a podcast network, which they innovatively called The Podcast Network, and they invited me to be uh, one of the podcasters that would help launch that. Uh, I started off with two shows, uh, one about mobile phones uh, and one about rock music, uh, debuted uh, on Valentine's Day 2005, which led to me becoming Scotland's first podcaster. Scotland's first podcaster? How do you feel? Do you get welcomed with a parade wherever you go? Uh, no. Oh. No. Um, because, <laughs> because of course, the first podcaster never actually gets any of the credit, do they? And, it, <laughs> and the, the history of podcasting is littered with people who will quite happily claim the word first. Um, and I think that is one of the interesting things about a new branch of technology. So many things are tried, so many r- roads and branches are examined to try and find what works and what doesn't. Says there's a lot of firsts that have fallen by the wayside. The podcast network is no more. I think it had a run for about three or four years. I carried on doing independent podcasting. Uh, and it's also like, what was the podcast for? Is, is the podcast something that can survive completely on its own? Is it a tool to help an existing website? Is it something that you build another website around? Uh, so it's it's like handing somebody um, a dictionary uh, and then them laying claim to the first blog. The dictionary was part of it, but it's not necessarily the whole story. How has podcasting changed then in the decades that you've been doing it? The first thing is people know what the word podcasting is. Those first year or two when you were explaining to people that you wanted to do an interview with them and it would take place in a studio and there would be microphones, but it wasn't for the radio and it was to go onto the internet and people could copy it over to this strange matchbox thing called the iPod uh, that you actually had to send out two two guide sheets. One of them was that this is what the show is about and the other one was this is what podcasting is. Nowadays, you can simply say, I'm doing an interview for a podcast, and people understand that. Uh, it's also the same with the public. Uh, you know, to get people listening to those early shows was actually quite a, a sort of mental challenge to explain what they were buying into. And nowadays, you don't have that. You can go, it's a podcast, it's accepted. It has become part of the fabric in the same way that a blog has become part of the f- fabric. Facebook, I am, MySpace. Twitter. All of these things at one point had to be explained, but nowadays they're, they're a language that people understand. So I think the main change of podcasting is it has become part of the language. Would you have expected to still be doing it in 2014? That's a very good question. Honestly, <laughs> I don't know because... I've played with so many bits of technology over the years uh, and enjoyed all of them. Uh, And some of them have went on to be incredibly impressive and a big part of my life. Podcasting is one of them. Blogging is another. Some of them slightly less so. You know, building arcade cabinets for a living. Uh, That didn't last very long, that one. Oh, It's a shame, really. But I do have a Defender cabinet in the office, so I'm quite happy about that. Did I expect podcasting to be something 
tangible though yes did i expect to be in for an interesting ride yes am i in amazed that i'm still on that ride yes because when i started podcasting this was my sort of pre-eurovision days at that point i was watching the show just as most people do once a year on may you know always managed to guess who the winner was because of course it's going to be uh, the singer from serbia of course it's going to be the metal monster from finland these things were obvious to me and i just ended up i mean it's probably the one that's that's that gets the most interest certainly in may which is the podcast that i run weekly about the eurovision song contest it it grew organically i did a bit of audio on my blog it 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 then burst through my traffic limits and I looked at it and went, right, I need to do this properly next year. So it spun out onto its own website. And at that point I said, well, let's make the podcast the central part of the website, but not the only part of the website. Uh, and then it was a matter of fitting different types of content around the podcast that would both augment the podcast, but also act as a way to bring in more listeners, more readers, and increase the engagement and interactivity of the site as a whole. Nowadays, that's grown up to be a site called ESCinsight.com, Eurovision Insight, which is probably one of the leading um, sites discussing the song contest throughout the year. So this came just through your own uncommercialised interest in Eurovision? Well, it was uncommercialized, and then somebody asked me, well, why don't you come in and say hello to us we're in the press room? And I went, I'd love to. I'm so glad that my, my tweets about this make it think that, but I'm actually on a train home from London to Edinburgh just now. And as a freelance journalist at that point went, why aren't I at the Eurovision Song Contest? I, I could rustle up a couple of commissions for this that would cover the costs. And so in a rather foolhardy decision, I decided that whoever won that year, I would go to the contest next year and Russia won. Oh. <laughs> so it's like, right, okay, slight change of plan, not doing that. But it, it got to March, got to about six or seven weeks before the contest. And I thought, you know what? There are enough commissions here. I have a chance to go to Russia. I'm never probably going to get the chance to go again. Unless they win again. Uh, unless they win again. Long discussion. There's a website for that. But I said, right, let's do it. Let's go to Russia. Let's go to Eurovision. And so it was actually a commercial decision because there, there, were, there were some freelance work. There were some commissions. It, it was actually a break-even journey. And when you have that sort of thing, you know, I can do it better next year. I can do it larger next year. Uh, and I did. And, and things snowballed from there. When you say snowballed, what proportion of your time is now taken up with Eurovision stuff? It's probably fair to say it's one one working day a week. When you get to the, the actual contest, it's it's my fly out and I'm backstage at the contest. So it's 24-7 for two weeks of the year. Oof. Do you ever feel like you're in danger of running out of things to say about Eurovision? Does John Motson ever feel like he's running out of things to say about the FA Cup final? I reckon secretly he might. <laughs> yeah, but he doesn't show it and he's a professional. Do you know, does Claire Balding ever run out of things to say at the Winter Olympics? Do, that's a, it's a really weird question. Does Chris Evans ever run out of things to say on The Breakfast Show? There may be a natural point where you need to re-energise things and take another look at what you're doing, but that's the case for any job. Eurovision, although it's a contest, it's still just a framework. 10,000 songs every year enter or submit their songs to national broadcasters around Europe, all wanting to be the one song that wins. So you have 10,000 individual stories across Europe of artists, 
performers, musicians, singers, songwriters, and everything that goes around that. And as anybody knows, where there is human interest, where there is story, where there is emotion, you can have fun. Who is your audience? This is the delightful thing. It it constantly changes throughout the year. You know, in the month after the contest in June, it's quite a small audience, but they're very, very hardcore. And then as you sort of work through the year, the the hardcore is there for the summer and then the not quite so hardcore but are quite interested in it pick up from about October through December. And then once you get to sort of the end of December through to March, the majority of countries around Europe are all holding their national finals, their Song for Europe contests, as it will. So you have public interest suddenly spiking in Sweden for a couple of weeks or Norway for a couple of weeks or Iceland or Switzerland for a couple of weeks as their countries step up and broadcast inside their borders and you start you get a lot of new fans to the podcast and the websites coming and then then they'll stick with you for that run from march through april as everybody gets ready for the contest and then when you get to the contest everybody in the world suddenly remembers isn't doesn't eurovision happen in may and they start googling and they start looking in itunes and because of the work that's been done throughout the year in terms of um, articles on the website podcasts social media interactions all of a sudden ESE Insight is one of the websites that is front and centre and you suddenly find this huge public audience you see the spike in the traffic numbers it's, it's, if you'd suddenly had Jay-Z appearing on a podcast you just go bang So it's important to surround the podcast itself with uh, a fully realised digital empire The podcast is part of what ESC Insight is known for. It is a strong thread for that, but we also have in-depth articles. We also have a weekly newsletter. We have presence in Facebook and Twitter and Hurdle Pile and Tumblr. So we have all of the elements that you'd expect in social media, and they all funnel into a central website. Uh, and then people can just stay with the element they like, or they can discover the newer elements. And that's what we tend to find. The podcast is very sticky, but there's there's still quite a high sort of barrier of entry to get into the podcast but once they're into the podcast we tend to keep them is your podcast officially affiliated with the eurovision organization first of all uh, we're officially accredited as members of press but ah. we, um, we're not employed by the ebu or eurovision.tv which is their online website although they have asked me to help out one of the um, advantages of podcasting is that you have this sort of living audio cv so uh, at the end of last year, end of 2013, uh, they decided that for the first time, the Junior Eurovision Song Contest, which had been running for 11 years, was going to be streamed online with a commentating team. Now, they'd had it streamed online since about 2005, 2006, but just as the, just as the pictures of the music, without somebody going over the top and explaining everything, they decided for 2013, they wanted a commentary team. Uh, and myself and Luke Fisher, who joins me in the, the commentaries that we do on the podcast, they ask us to be the official commentators for the EBU for the Junior Eurovision Song Contest. So at that point, I was associated with them. So it, the podcast opened up that door to an international online video broadcast. Can you make a living out of doing a podcast? It depends on the podcast. If Eurovision was on every month of the year then yes, very comfortably. Uh, But really, there's only about four to six weeks for that topic, which can provide a living wage. So I I have other podcasts. I do the Edinburgh Festival Fringe podcast, has about four weeks of earning power. 
uh, and other podcasts are part of websites that do bring in money. I think if you were focused, you chose and choose the right area. And as with anything in life, if you just get that little spark and get everything right, then yes, there is a living income in there. But as as with everything, it will feel quite fragile. How do you see the future of podcasting? Podcasting is always going to be an element now. People love telling stories. If the internet, it boils down to anything, it's the greatest storytelling machine that mankind has ever invented. Since since the days of having small campfires, people have sat around and told stories to other people. The internet really allows you to tell stories. And yes, text is the predominant way of doing stories, and video is a very fast way of doing stories, but podcasting is, is a way for the storyteller, for a single voice or a collection of voices to actually reach out across borders. And it's if you go back 50 or 60 years, broadcasting was all about one to many. There would be one voice, usually coming from Alexandra Palace, uh, and it would go out to many people, um, all the people around Alexandra Palace who'd actually bought a radio. Uh, and then the war came, and then they all had to stop, and then they all had to start up again, and everything broadcast out. Uh, but now, of course, the internet gives you many to many. You can have many voices to choose from. And these many voices are broadcasting to many voices on the internet. There is more audio being produced every single day. And because your audience is spread out around the world, you don't, you know, there's not enough Eurovision fans inside Edinburgh's transmission service area that would justify a show. But there are enough around the world. So by creating this fabric, the internet allows you to reach out to the niches and gather them all together. The geographic problems that broadcasting had in the late 20th century no longer apply. So in that sense, the internet as a broadcast mechanism and therefore podcasting will carry on. The form will continually change. It will continually reinvent itself. There will constantly be new people coming on board with new ideas. The discussion of whether a platform such as SoundCloud is that podcasting? No. Is it putting audio online so people can play it? Yes. It's the same. It's still audio. It's still using the same toolboxes. It's still using the same tricks. It's still using the same sort of construction techniques. The delivery mechanism is slightly different. The branding is slightly different. But the idea of being able to have a one-to-one in a many-to-many environment will always exist. And lastly, what to you, you and Spence, makes a good podcast? I know it's old and hackneyed, but the Rythian principles really work well here. To educate, to entertain and inform. Uh, I think those are the three key strands. Uh, Yes, here we are, Radio 4, let's get back to the Rythian principles. But now Helen and Ollie get to take the box in the chart smart. BBC Trust, done. So... All of that is fine because those three principles really do encapsulate what you want in a story. You want it to be entertaining. You're asking people to give up their time and you're wanting to give them back more than they invest. Uh, and most uh, sort of basic level of Maslow's needs is that's entertaining. You know, it's fun. It's good to listen to. You're creating a friendship. We might have different music songs. We might have different guests coming on to whatever podcast we do. But there's that constant of the entertainer in the middle. You're informing. Very few people get to go backstage at Eurovision for two weeks. But lots of people want to know more about the contest. So you're giving them that access in a very personal environment. And because the audience is known to the podcaster, they can tailor that experience, that information delivery 
very well and, and, and education as well in most times it's very very subtle is it's, it's the Sesame Street principle at work here because you can impart things in a podcast you know if you are doing a, a podcast say from uh, podcasting the life of a hospital you can talk about health if you're podcasting say from a racetrack you may be able to talk about very car safety if if you're teaching kids to do a podcast at school not only are the kids doing the entertaining and the informing but they are educating themselves as well the those those three principles if you can have a podcast that meets two of them you're doing a good job if you can meet all three of them then you're putting out something special <laughs> 